<clears throat> well, good morning to you, and happy New Year's Eve. Uh, if you have your Bible, let me invite you to take it and turn with me to the book of 1 John in chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. If you do not know where the book of 1 John is, a simple trick to find it is opening your Bible to the very end and just flipping pages backwards to the left, and eventually you will stumble your way and land there. 1 John chapter 2. This morning, as we continue in our ongoing study of this book, we're going to be looking at just three verses. Three verses which are admittedly short in length, but as I believe we will come to see here very soon, are rich in their content and very practical in their application for our lives. And so if you're able to, let me invite you just one final time to stand with me as I uh, read these verses aloud for us and, and just sort of get them out on the table before our eyes so that we can see exactly what it is that we're dealing with in God's Word this morning. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. I'll read our text for us, and then we'll go to the Lord and ask for His blessing and help as we study it together. Starting in verse 15, the Apostle John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. If you would, pray with me. Well, Father in heaven, these words are not difficult for us to understand, but they are indeed difficult for us to swallow. <laughs> Though we have been redeemed, that we have been sanctified, and that we have the promise that we will one day be glorified, the fact remains that in this life, we still yet struggle to loosen our grip on the love of this world. And so as we study your word this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would give us the humility of heart and the resolve of our will not to love this world, but rather to love the one who has indeed overcome this world. It's in Christ's name that we ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. As we study this passage together this morning, I want to talk with you on the subject of sinful love. Sinful love. And as we begin our time together, let me just offer a quick caveat to say that if you are a guest with us this morning, I want to just assure you that the irony of this text being the one that I would preach on the first Sunday immediately following America's most consumeristic and expensive holiday of the year uh, is certainly not lost on me. In fact, were we the type of church to just, you know, pick passages of Scripture at random to preach each and every week, I almost certainly would have chosen a hundred other texts to preach on this particular Lord's Day before I would have chosen the one before us this morning. However, that's just frankly not the way that we approach the Bible here. Just to give you some context, our, our customary method of preaching here at Bloomfield Baptist Church is to work our way through books of the Bible sequentially and in consecutive order, not skipping over any portion of Scripture that presents itself as we do so. And so as I've been making my way through the book of 1 John throughout this year, it just so happens that in the Lord's providence, this would be the text that we would land on here on this final Lord's Day of 2023. And while, yes, my cultural sensibilities may have tried persuading me time and time again that literally any other Sunday of the year would have been a better Sunday to preach this text than this one, I think the fact remains that this passage will actually have its greatest effect upon us if we allow it to strike while the iron is still hot. And so that's what our aim will be to do this morning. 
Well, just by way of review, if you've been with us during our earlier sermons this year in the book of 1 John, then you'll recall that the Apostle John's primary purpose in writing this epistle is really to stoke the fire of the Christian's assurance. In fact, the great purpose statements of his letter comes rather explicitly at the end of this book where he says in 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And as we've mentioned before, this word know appears some 40 times throughout the course of this short letter. And it seems that at least one of the reasons that the Apostle John uses this word so repetitively is really to hammer home the point that as Christians, we do not have to guess about whether or not we have received eternal life. We're not out here just playing the lottery with our salvation, just crossing our fingers and hoping to God that one day our jersey will be pulled and our number will be called into the kingdom. No, that is not our position whatsoever. Rather, what God tells us in his word is that we can actually have a no-so kind of faith. That you really can know, believer, that you know the Father, and that you know his Son, Jesus Christ. And so, because of that, up to this point in his letter, John has been providing for us the various tests and marks by which we can evaluate the true state of our hearts. And as we've looked at these tests, we've seen clearly that in this world, there really are only two categories of people. There are those who have the Spirit, and then there are those who do not have the Spirit. There are those who have been born twice and have a heart of flesh, and then there are those who have only been born once, and as the prophet Ezekiel once said, still possess a heart of stone. To put it as plain as possible, John says, as you and I step back and survey the entirety of the human race, at the end of the day, there are only two types of people. There might be multiple personality types. You might get nine results on the Enneagram test, but spiritually speaking, the world can be divided into two categories. There are those who are saved, and then there are those who are unsaved. And nowhere, perhaps, is this distinction between these two categories of people made more clear than right here in our text this morning. Because here in these three verses, John gets straight to the heart of the matter. And what we will see as we sort of unfold these verses is what we inherently already know to be true, and that is that what we love reveals what we are. In other words, either the predominant disposition of your heart will be that you are consumed and driven by a love for God, or it will be that you are consumed and driven by a love for this world. And just as water and oil will never mix together in the same jar, neither can a love for God and a love for this world possibly be married together in the same heart. And that theme really is the drum that John will be beating all throughout the three verses before us this morning. Well, with those introductory remarks in mind, let me just give you a quick roadmap of where we're heading in our text. As we deal with this passage, I want to highlight just three points for us. First of all, I want us to notice a command not to love the wrong things. Secondly, I want us to see a verdict about those who love the wrong world. And then finally, I want us to close our time with an appeal to set our love upon a better source. So with that roadmap kind of laid out before us, let's begin by considering, first of all, John's command not to love the wrong things. Starting in verse 15, John begins this section of his letter with three punchy words. He says, do not love. Do not love. And right off the bat, if we are familiar with our Bibles, we'd have to admit that we are not used to seeing these three words in this particular order. In fact, what we're most accustomed to seeing in Scripture is not commands not to love, but rather commands to love. For example, you may remember 
Jesus' words in John 13, 34, where he says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Or perhaps when you think about this concept of love, you think of the great commandments in Mark 12, 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Other commands to love may come to mind for you as well. For example, in the New Testament, we are told to love our enemies. That's Matthew 5, 44. We're told to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, Romans 12, 9. In Ephesians 5, 25, husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so the list could really go on and on and on and on. But the point is this, that often when we think about the command to love, we think of it in the positive, not in the negative. But here, at the outset of our passage, we are told something altogether different. Here we read not of an exhortation to love, but rather a prohibition to love. Here we are told not of something to set our love upon, but rather something to withhold our love from. In other words, as Christians, we learn something vital here in these few short words. And what we learn is this, that there really is such a thing as sinful love. It's not a myth. There is a type of love that we ought to repent of when we indulge in it, and that we ought to flee from when we are tempted by it. And so the words that follow, they really ought to kind of grab us by the lapels and garner our attention. They ought to make our ears perk up with curiosity. And so as we look at this, we ought to ask the question, what is it that God says we are not to love? Well, in verse 15, we see the answer. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, perhaps just two or three of you here this morning will be disappointed to hear that we really do not have the time in this sermon to trace out what scholars have often referred to as John's tenfold use of the word world. In other words, scholars have rightly determined that when John uses the word world, both in his gospel and in his three letters, depending upon the specific context, he really could mean any number of things by it. And because of that, when we read these words, do not love the world or the things in the world, we must be clear that John is not condemning here the rightful appreciation for this universe or for the glory of God that is manifested all throughout it. Nor is he saying that we are not to love the people in this world. Because to say either of those two things would be in direct contradiction to what the remainder of the Bible teaches on that subject. And we will remember that one of the basic rules of Bible interpretation is that we must always allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So we need to ask the question, well, If that's not what he means, then what does John mean here when he commands us not to love the world? What is he warning us not to set our love and affections upon? And in response to that question, we might well say that it's almost universally agreed upon that when John uses the word world in this sense, and when he tells us not to love the world, what he's talking about here is what one theologian once described as worldly attitudes or values that are opposed to God. Or to put it another way, it is simply referring to the evil world system that we see all around us. And so thought of in this regard, this command makes a whole lot of sense to us. Because as Christians, we are not to love the kingdom of this world that is in direct opposition to the kingdom of God. In fact, we could actually take it one step further and say that we cannot love any kingdom that is opposed to our Father's kingdom. It is impossible. I mean, think of it this way. Just as a diehard UK fan could no more bring themselves to put on a U of L jersey and go cheer on the cards at the Yum Center 
Neither could a truly devoted follower of Christ possibly bring themselves to put on the jersey of this world and to promote its evil policies and agendas that are in direct opposition and contradiction to their father's policies and agendas. It is contrary to our very nature as Christians to celebrate what the world celebrates, to call evil good and good evil. And so I believe that that is what John means when he says, do not love the world. We are not to love this evil world system. That's true. However, as he typically does, John adds a further point to clarify what he's saying here. We can't come up for error just yet. He's got one more thing to warn us of in this verse before we move on. Not only, John says, are we to refrain from loving this world, but we're also to refrain from loving the things in this world. And here, I think, is where we really begin to deal with something much more practical and straightforward. This phrase, the things in the world, I don't think needs much of an explanation. We know what these things are. You know what these things are. I know what these things are. In fact, if it weren't for this little addition at the end of verse 15, we just might have been able to slide our way out the door this morning without feeling that our toes have been stomped all over. But it's just at this point that our text makes us feel rather uncomfortable coming off of the heels of Christmas. In preparing for this message, I came across an article that I have to admit was quite the gut punch for me as I considered the temptations of my own heart, specifically around this time of the year. The article was written by a man named Patrick Bellegarde Smith, who both grew up in Haiti and spent the vast majority of his academic career studying the unique intricacies of uh, Haitian culture and Haitian religions. And after several decades of studying this people group and spending time with them and getting to know them inside and out, he finally concluded, and these are his own words, that the Haiti people are roughly 60% Catholic, 40% Protestant, and 100% Voodoo. That is to say, regardless of their religious profession, it is their fascination with magic and with witchcraft that dominates their day-to-day -day life and practice. Well, sometime after this article was published, an American pastor picked up on this story and, in relaying it with his own congregation, added, if that is true of Haiti, well, then we could well say of America that we are 60% Protestant, 40% Catholic, and 100% materialistic. And I just wonder who of us here would honestly argue with this point. You see, it's against this backdrop of our materialistic culture that many of us are drowning in that John's words written over 2,000 years ago ring louder than ever. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If his audience needed to hear it then, how much more do you and I need to hear that now? Well, what exactly are these things that John is talking about here? Well, it would be impossible for us to exhaust the list completely, but certainly this command not to love the things in the world, well, it would have to include the items that were on your shopping list and my shopping list for the past month and a half. It would necessarily include all those gifts that we just opened from underneath the Christmas tree this past week. It would certainly include all those things that we bought in 2023 that we'll later on be paying for in 2024. However, any fair treatment of this text would have to point out that the things in this world that we are not to love would have to include not only the things that we do have, but also those things that we don't yet have that we so badly wish we one day will have. It would, it would necessarily include, you know, for instance, 
Not that this applies to anybody here. That, that new truck that you've been researching for months upon months upon months that has a whole lot more horsepower than the one that you currently have to tell all your things. It would probably include, you know, that flat screen TV that just went on a New Year's Eve sale that's at least eight inches bigger than the one that's currently mounted on your wall in your living room at home. It would include that, that new purse with just a little bit more room to hold all your things. It would include, you know, that new video game, that new console you've been eyeing for months and months and months that you just cannot wait to get your hands on. And look, if I haven't named your thing, I'm sure you could fill in the blank because the reality is we all have something that tends to draw our hearts toward this world and away from our God. And whatever that is for us, that is a form of sinful love. Now, before we move on, I want to be clear about something here in case we miss the main point in this passage. Because what John is saying here, and what really the entire Bible teaches as a whole, is not that you can't have things, but rather, things cannot have you. You can, you know, own that car, but if you're in Christ, that car cannot own you. You can keep all those things you just opened for Christmas, don't worry, but if you've been redeemed, those things better not keep you. At the time I was preparing this message several weeks ago, Rachel and I were entering into month four of Jack's life where we had still not yet dialed in the perfect plan for how to consistently get him to sleep each and every night. And if you have kids, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, welcome to parenthood. Well, that is where we found ourselves. And in the midst of trying to buy anything and everything that would help him sleep, in a moment of desperation, we decided to pull the trigger and purchase one of these expensive, brand new, popular weighted sleep sacks, which essentially, if you don't have kids, or if you just don't care, is basically a weighted blanket and a baby swaddle combined into one. And so we bought this thing, and let me just tell you, if we could have paid for expedited overnight Santa Claus speed shipping, we would have done it in a heartbeat. But we did not. And so therefore, I resorted to the pathetic and helpless life of checking that tracking number 84 times a day to make sure that I would know the precise moment that that swaddle would show up on my front doorstep. And without even realizing it, as that next week of waiting ensued, that tiny little swaddle went from really being a potential aid to helping us all get a few hours of precious sleep to becoming some sort of indispensable item that I had convinced myself I truly could not live without. Before it had even arrived on our doorstep, it was clear to me that that swaddle was not something I owned, but rather that swaddle owned me. It had consumed my thoughts, it had consumed my mind, and it had consumed all of my attention. And I just wonder if perhaps some of you here have ever found yourself in that same position. You've had something for so long that you've convinced yourself that this thing is not just a want, but it's actually a need. That this thing is not just something you'd like to have, but rather it's something you're going to have. And it's only a matter of time until you get your hands upon it. You know, often we can expose whether or not something has become an overinflated love in our lives by asking ourselves a very simple question. And that question is, can I go without it? Can you go without it? Can this thing be taken from me without my happiness being taken with it? And just in case, you know, you might be sitting there thinking to yourself that, well, all this doesn't really apply so much to me. Let me just remind you that the things in this world that we are not to love may not always be a physical thing. Many of you here have experienced the, the tug to, to fall in love with your job or with your career. 
that next position or that next promotion seems to be the only thing that your mind is ever preoccupied with. People in your family, your loved ones, your spouse, they try to speak to you and get your attention, but you're just dozed out. Your eyes are glazed over. They have to repeat themselves four, five, six, seven times, but your mind is just fixed on your agenda at work the next day. And this constant pursuit at your workplace, it just consumes you. It's overtaken you, and it's become your master. Or perhaps for you, it's not advancing in your career that tends to tempt you to consume your love, but rather it's uh, it's this dream of a perfectly designed and decorated home that just perfectly expresses your personality and your interest and your style and your tastes. And if it could be measured, we'd see that the bulk of your thought life and a search history on your phone would reveal that this house is not just your home, but it's actually become your God. It has gained mastery over your soul, and you found that you've fallen in love with the things of this world. Whatever it might be for you, let's heed the words in our text once more. Do not love the world or the things in the world. I want us to shift gears now and consider a second emphasis in this passage. Not only do we see a command not to love the wrong things, but in the second place, we notice a verdict about those who love the wrong world. And as we turn our attention to the second half of verse 15, and really the remainder of this paragraph that we're looking at, what we see John doing here now is really just building an argument for why we ought not to love the world or the things in the world. In other words, he started with the what, and now he's moving on now to the why. And, and as we look at this closer, we'll notice that this is a really a two-pronged argument. There's two reasons, John says, that the Christian ought to refrain from the sin of worldliness. First of all, the Christian should not love the world because a love for the world is incompatible with a love for God. And secondly, as we'll notice in our final point here in just a moment, the Christian should not love the world because the pleasures of this world are temporary, while the riches of God's kingdom are eternal. However, it's this first argument that we just alluded to that he takes up here in the second half of verse 15. Look back with me in your Bibles. John says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see what he's doing here? John's not beating around the bush. We may accuse him of being circular and repetitive. We may label him as being a rather scatterbrained individual, but there's one thing that we cannot peg John as. It's being unclear and indirect. Here in these few short words that we've just looked at, John makes one thing abundantly clear to us. And what he tells us is this. A love for God and a love for this world cannot both have permanent residence in the same heart. It is impossible. It's unfathomable. In recent decades, behavioral scientists have pretty much closed the case on the question about whether or not we as human beings have the ability to truly multitask in our work. And it's been pretty well proven in numerous studies that regardless of what we may think our capacity is for multitasking, the fact of the matter is that you and I can truly only concentrate on one task at a time. I may think that I'm able to adequately carry on a conversation with you while I'm scrolling on social media on my phone. But what's really happening is that I'm rapidly switching my attention back and forth between you and my phone over and over and over and over again. Now, what's that have to do with our text? Well, John says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And essentially, the point that he's making here is this. Our capacity to set our affections upon two things at the same time is just like our capacity to multitask in our work. In other words, it doesn't exist. It's a myth. It's impossible. 
We may think that we are able to prioritize God and our career at the same time, but we're only fooling ourselves. We may think that we have the capacity to love Christ and love our own reputation, but the fact of the matter is we're constantly choosing one or the other. You may think that you can actually love the Father and love your own sin, but listen to what the Bible says in Galatians 5.17. It tells us that the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. Catch this. Jesus Christ will not make his home in a heart that is occupied by tenants that are daily working night and day against the agenda of his own kingdom. He will not do it. And so what John is saying here is that what you love reveals what you are. If you love the world, if you are consumed with worldly things and worldly ideologies, if you're more influenced by the headlines on the news than you are by the truthfulness of God's word, well, then your life simply reveals that the love of God is an utterly foreign concept to you. If anyone loves the world, John says, well, the love of the Father is not in them. And the unwritten punchline here is, well, how could it be? How could a love for the Father possibly exist in a heart that is captivated and consumed by a love for this world? Years ago, during the COVID pandemic, when Rachel and I were still childless and I had nothing but free time on my hands, I decided that I was going to buy a coffee roaster and dive headfirst into the world of roasting my own coffee. And so I did this, and, you know, through many months of expensive trial and error, I actually ended up, alongside my brother, beginning my very own coffee roasting side hustle that I called Roy's Coffee Roasting. And let me just tell you, my coffee was good. In fact, my coffee was real good. And in case you think I'm being arrogant, the reason that my coffee was so good was not because I was some master or some expert at roasting my own coffee, but rather it was because of how fresh my coffee was when I would go to grind it and brew it just a couple of days later. Anyone could do it, but it was absolutely delicious. Well, fast forward to today, and here I am, many years later, still an avid coffee drinker. And let me just tell you, in case you are wondering about getting into coffee roasting yourself, that after plunging into the world of roasting my own coffee, one of the unexpected side effects that I did not foresee happening is that once you begin to roast your own coffee, you really cannot enjoy coffee from anywhere else. And especially if that anywhere else starts with an S and ends with a Starbucks. I had tasted the very best that there was to offer. And because of that, there was a sense in which I lost my ability to enjoy anything less. The connection here is not difficult for us to see. Because if you are in Christ, well, this is basically your testimony with the fleeting pleasures of this world. You are a new creation. You are a citizen of heaven. You have tasted the heavenly realities. You've been made a partaker in the Holy Spirit. And because of that, the enticements of this world have lost their power over you. They do not, and indeed cannot, scratch your itch. They cannot satisfy you. The very best that this world has to offer is, in the words of the Apostle Paul, dung. It's garbage compared to the very worst that you and I will experience in heaven. And that thought ought to fill us with an overflowing, abounding peace and joy. Now, before we move on, let me just make one final point here that on the surface, may seem somewhat technical, but in reality, I believe is very practical for us to grab. In the original language, the phrase, if anyone loves the world, that we see in verse 15, it's actually describing a continuous action, not an occasional event. 
And because of that, this phrase here could really be worded, if anyone keeps on loving the world, the love of the Father is not in them. In other words, this is referring to the pattern and the direction of your life. This is not speaking about the Christian who occasionally stumbles into a worldly attitude or worldly mindset. Because let's face it, who among us here could honestly say that we are not given over to this posture of hearts at least from time to time? Many of us, myself included, have been guilty of this very thing in just the past few weeks. In a moment of weakness and sin, sure, you and I might indulge in the pleasures of this world and what it has to offer, but it will not be very long before that detour off into the world leaves a bitter and sour taste in our mouth and drives us right back to the narrow path of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So when John speaks of someone who keeps on loving the world, he is talking of those who are characterized, patterned by this type of behavior. Their whole life is running 100 miles per hour toward what John Bunyan described in his Pilgrim's Progress as the vanity fair. These people have their hearts and minds set on Times Square. They cannot sleep at night because they're constantly thinking about their investment portfolios and the exact percentage rates of interest that they are accruing on those each and every year. Their, their search history is consumed with websites filled with things that Jesus Christ himself had to die for, and they do not care about it. And it is to these people that John drops the gavel and he issues the verdict and says, the love of the Father is not in them. And why is that so? Well, because James 4.4 4 puts it, friendship with the world is enmity with God. So before we move on to our final point, let me just pause right here and ask you a question of application. Where do you find yourself on this paradigm? Are you an occasional stumbler into the love of this world, or are you a persistent pursuer of it and the things that it has to offer? Perhaps a helpful diagnostic question for us all as we wrestle with this question would come straight from the words of Psalm 84, where the psalmist says, for better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Well, let me ask you, if you were given that decision, which one would you choose? If you were confronted today with this choice and you had to make a decision, where would you cast your vote? Would you take, on the one hand, 1,000 more days here on earth to live it up, to get the most of this life and what this world has to offer? Or would you throw all three of those years away in exchange for just one day in the courts of heaven? For just 24 hours to look upon the face of him who loved you and gave himself for you. If anyone loves the Father, the love of the world has no power over them. Well, let's hurry on to our final point as we close our time together. In the last place, we see in this text an appeal to set our love upon a better source. The first argument that John laid before us for why we ought not to love the world was because of how incompatible a love for the world is with a love for the Father. We saw that clearly. But now, here in verses 16 and 17, John closes his argument by bringing our attention to the second reason for why loving this world is so foolish and so senseless for the Christian. It's foolish, he says, because, well, at the end of the day, this world is only temporary. It's not eternal. It's passing away. This world is here today, and it's gone tomorrow. Look at how he says this in verse 16. For all that is in the world, he says, and then he goes on to clarify what he means by in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. 
And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. To put your hope in the things of this world, John says, it's like boarding the Titanic. It's a sinking ship. It's going down. It has no future. It offers you and I no security. And this is essentially what Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 that we read earlier. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. To do so would be the very height of foolishness. To put all of your life's work, all of your effort, and all of your energies into a stock that is promised and sure to crash tomorrow is utter insanity. It's like climbing a rope made of sand. It is sure to let you down. And yet, if we were honest, you and I know many people in our lives who are daily reaching for this rope. They have bought into the lie that this world is truly all there is. And because of that, they look like hamsters running in a wheel, hoping that one day this world will deliver on all of its promises to gratify them and satisfy their deepest desires. They are ruled by what John describes in verse 16 as the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, which, as one pastor once put it helpfully, could be thought of as simply referring to, number one, the desire to indulge, number two, the desire to possess, and number three, the desire to impress. The desire to indulge, the desire to possess, and the desire to impress. And if we were being honest this morning, we all know something of what it is to desire these things. We all have been guilty at one time or another of indulging in those things we ought not to indulge, purchasing those things we ought not to possess, and compromising to impress those we ought not to fear. And John says at the end of verse 16 that, well, this behavior is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And what do we know about the world? Well, verse 17 tells us that the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This world, along with everything in it, John says, is really nothing more than an hourglass of sand. And notice that John does not say that the world will pass away, but rather that the world is passing away. The sand is already falling, and not any one of us here knows when that last grain of sand will be. Listen to the words of Jesus. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As we close our time together, I want you to imagine a scenario with me. I want you to imagine that you found yourself standing on the deck of a cruise ship that, for the time being, was still anchored into the harbor and was just moments away from departing on a week-long cruise vacation. And as you stood there and peeked over the ledge, you noticed in the side of the ship a massive gaping hole that was taking on massive quantities and amounts of water that was causing uh, the, the face of that ship to quickly recede beneath the waterline. Now, if you found yourself in this position, let me ask you, what do you think you would do? Would you, you know, just convince yourself this isn't a big deal. I'm sure the captain has a plan for this. He's got it under control. I'm just going to go find my room, get my bags unpacked, settle in, and make myself comfortable for the trip ahead. Or would you make a beeline for the exit and get off that ship while you still can? Well, we all know if you had an ounce of reason in your brain, you would run for dry ground and safety as fast as you possibly could. And you take everyone around you with you. 
There'd be no question about it. But friends, the Bible tells us that this world is just like that ship. John says, this world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Here's the gospel in a nutshell. This world is a sinking ship. It's sinking because of our sin, but there is a way to dry ground and safety through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of the old hymn. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Tonight, millions of people around the world will stay up late to watch the ball drop, which will mark the end of the calendar year 2023. But the Bible tells us that one day a far more significant ball will drop. And on that day, that ball will not merely be marking the end of one calendar year, but it will, in fact, be marking the end of every single calendar year as we know it. Revelation 6.14 tells us that the sky will be rolled up like a scroll, and Jesus will descend in power to gather to himself all those who are his own. And on that day, friends, let me tell you, no New Year's resolutions would have counted or mattered for anything that were not resolved in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so if you do not know this Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, then let me appeal to you one final time by echoing the words of John in this passage as we close. The one who does the will of God lives forever. Unbeliever, run to him while you still can. His loving arms are open wide, ready to receive and accept you. And believer, rest in him and expectantly wait for him. For no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Let me invite you all to stand with me as we conclude our time together by going to our Father in heaven and praying and asking that he would help apply these things to our minds and hearts that we might respond in obedience.